It is the week of October 2nd, 2019. And of course, that means new comic books. As always, Albert and I review and give little bits of spoilers, but not many spoilers on the new stuff out this week. What's worth your money? What's not? How bizarre do bizarre adventures get? How happy of a happy ending do the X-Men deserve? And what is Tom King doing to all of us emotionally? And is there any way to bring a lawsuit over it? In addition to those burning questions, Albert questions my masculinity and throws a lot of shade at kids everywhere that love Star Wars. But he does that in tandem with Mark Hamill, apparently. All this, listener emails, and many, many other questions that we'll bring up and then drop like we never asked them and move on to the next subject because we have short attention spans. This week on Kingdom Cast's podcast. I'm Stan Daniel, and with me as always is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. How you doing? I'm pretty good. You doing okay? I can't complain. We got another Birds of Prey trailer this week. Did you we see did. it? Uh, yeah, I saw it. It didn't make me feel any better. Did it make you feel any better? I guess I'm indifferent. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's good. Just sort of there right now. I mean, we're going to go see the movie. No ands, ifs, or buts. Yeah. I, I'm going to review the movie on here, uh, probably on Channel 6, like we always do. But every time Margot Robbie shows up, and it, it just looks like they're doing everything they can to make her very unappealing. And the scary thing is, is that the more unappealing she gets as Harley Quinn, and she's a brilliant Harley Quinn, she's a brilliant actress, the more acceptable and appealing she gets to gin pop. Are you getting that same feeling? Well, she's already like acceptable uh, on your standard movie going audience. I, it just doesn't really do anything for me, I suppose. Well, like well, none of the I'm characters just, really look like anybody, like no one, nothing stands out at all in the trailer. They keep dancing around. I know that's supposed to be Victor Zaz that is saying Harley Quinn is mine and not the Joker, but God knows she mentions the Joker more times in this recent Birds of Prey trailer than I think the name Joker is mentioned in any of the Joaquin Phoenix trailers. Yeah. I mean, she really does. Every other line is Joker and, and not in, <laughs> not in as good as of an animated voice. <laughs> I'm open to voices, Moana brothers. <laughs> Lord. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it right now. I was a little nervous on the Shazam, the first Shazam trailer, but the second Shazam trailer looked like it was going to, we were going to be in for an entertaining movie. And yeah. that movie turned out to be really good. And of course we got Joker coming up in just a, uh, well, by the time this podcast goes up, we got Joker coming up within 24 hours or less. We of course are going to uh, do a podcast on Friday night, aren't we? Yeah, I should be able to swing it. Okay, so we'll do a podcast on Friday night, which means the Joker podcast should be up sometime Saturday, sometime before Saturday evening. Yeah. So that'll be a special bonus podcast. Uh, in addition to that, I did talk to Alabama's resident DC Comics expert, Tim Bryant, and he is all about coming on and discussing all things DCU, the multiverse situation in Justice League and everything, uh, the week that the last issue of Doomsday Clock comes out. Okay. 
So we got that going for us. And as we said, I think it was last week, we said that the reason we were postponing Alice and Marceau's return to discuss the Marvel Cinematic Universe at length was because we were waiting on an announcement. And it looks like we got that announcement. That was pretty forward thinking of us there, Albert. I mean, they were going to make some deal out no matter what. Well, we knew that, but I was getting the vibes that the announcement was coming really quick, but I thought it was going to be in like a month inside of a month right yeah. before Disney Plus premiered. And instead, I mean, we, we wrapped up that show and while I was editing it, the announcement went up that Tom Holland is back where he belongs as Peter Parker, the amazing Spider-Man inside Marvel Cinematic Universe for one more Spidey film and one more Marvel Cinematic appearance. I understand that that's just the initial deal and that Tom Holland was a big part of making that happen. And what I haven't heard, but I am going to go ahead and throw in here is I'm willing to bet that somebody with the initials RDJ was an even bigger part in making that happen right before the D23 summit when those Instagram photos went out of him and Tom hiking. I, I mean, it could be. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what what to think of it. <laughs> you don't think about these things twenty four seven. You haven't lost sleep over the fact that Tom Holland Spider Man may be gone from the Marvel Cinematic. No, because there's no way they weren't. There's no replacement for Spider Man. I mean, there's no. No, no, we weren't. Uh, we I I know you and I and Allison weren't particularly worried about this because of the stuff we were seeing and all. But dang, they did turn that around a lot quicker than I thought. In addition to that, there are rumors popping up from the same places that basically was telling us by the end of D23 that there was a deal in the works that it's entirely possible that Charlie Cox is coming back as Daredevil. We have heard that John Bernthal's been in touch with uh, Marvel Cinematic. And of course, John Bernthal plays the Punisher. And the Netflix series, the Defenders series running on Netflix. But there's no word about Jessica Jones or Luke Cage yet. However, highly, highly doubtful that we'll see Finn Jones' Iron Fist again. But the rumor out there is in the next Spider-Man movie, they may be angling for Charlie Cox to play Matt Murdock defending Peter Parker, his Spider-Man, in court. I don't know about that. This seems... Every time I see rumors like that or things thrown around, I just think it's crap people's just made up and other people's ran with it because these movies and stuff are so far out. They are, and I agree in that. And this does seem like a lot of wishful thinking, except two things. It's coming from the same source. And the other end of it is, is that there was talk from low-level Marvel execs that had leaked out about Jennifer Walters being the defense attorney for Peter Parker. And of course, Jennifer Walters is showing up on, well, Jennifer Walters is She-Hulk. And we don't know an actress that's playing her. We don't have any names associated with that. But we know that Disney announced at D23 that She-Hulk will have a 10-episode, 8 or 10-episode series airing on their streaming network in, I think, 2020, maybe 2021. It's got to be 2021. Hopefully she's fixed in the comics by then. Well, they're already getting back toward that. I've seen a few issues where where she's speaking normal and everything else. Who would you rather see between the two if they're going to bring Daredevil back as a D23 property? If they were to do that with Charlie Cox, would you rather see Jennifer Walters or Matt Murdock defending Peter Parker? 
it depends on the tone that they're going with. If they want to, if they're going to be like goofy with it, you need to get She-Hulk to do it. If they're going to play it with a straight face, you need to get Murdoch to do it. Well, how would you classify the last two Spider-Man movies? Straight-faced or goofy? Eh, they're mostly straight. I mean, there's always going to, if it's a straight-up Spider-Man movie, there's always going to be some humor-based stuff in them. Based on the tone of the last two, I think Jennifer Walters would, would be a better fit. Okay, so you'd rather see Jennifer Walters in this. Traditionally speaking, Spider-Man and Daredevil have a lot more interaction in the comics but the Spider-Man and She-Hulk interaction in the comics have always been hysterical. Yeah. So your vote is for She-Hulk. I'm I'm kind of, look, either one of them I'd be good with. I like Charlie Cox's Daredevil. How did you like the series, the three seasons on Netflix? I thought the Daredevil stuff was, was really, really well done. I really like the Daredevil stuff. I really like Daredevil and I really like Punisher. I loved the first season of Luke Cage and I was good with the first season of Jessica Jones, but I felt like the second season of Jessica Jones lost something. Yeah. I didn't care for second season of Jessica Jones or the Defenders or Iron Fist. Oh, I didn't like Defenders. Iron Fist seemed like it was three episodes too long and did not draw me in as much as Luke Cage and Daredevil did. Luke Cage had an entire feel to it. Yeah. I mean, they, they would film sideways. It was almost reminiscent of the Adam West Batman TV yeah. series. There would be a certain tone to the coloration and lighting, and the camera angle would be slightly sideways, slightly ajar. Gave the whole thing a really cool feel to it. Uh, not to mention, he did outstanding his Luke Cage in it. It was a very good story as well. Nothing to add there. <laughs> no, not on that. <laughs> All right, Albert. Well, a couple of little more trivia bits, and we'll get to some questions. We've got several questions from listeners this week. Other trivia, Quantum and Woody will be returning as a comic in Valiant's 2020 pitch. While we're on the, And I like Quantum and Woody. They're the main things from Valiant that I used to read. Like I've said several times before, I have trouble hopping on to Valiant, but I, I really did enjoy quantum and woody back in the day yeah i never really got too much into valiant the stuff i read back in the day was their actual their licensed properties like turok yeah and that was that was sort of it i didn't read any other non-licensed stuff i I, I read ninjack a little bit back then but that was about it quantum and woody was kind of in the tradition of giffen and dematius's oh i'm sorry i was informed i'm saying dematius wrong by a very important person dematius is that I how you say that? Yes, you say it, Dematteis. No, you don't. I, this person should know. He worked with him for several oh, years. No, I guess so. Dematteis. And maybe I hope Demati- I am. Maybe Dematteis was just screwing with him. Look, you come below the Mason-Dixon line, it's Dematteis. <laughs> While we're on the subject of things 2020, I've got a question for you. Do you think the situation with Iron Man where suddenly Dan Slott and his co-writer are off of it and they just last week announced the cancellation of the Tony Stark run of Iron Man, do you think that was planned? Yeah, that book ain't got nowhere to go after they finish up all this stuff. Of well, no. I, I mean, and all this mess. I mean, do you think from Tony Stark issue number one, they said, we're going to run this up until we come up on the year 2020 and then we're going to stop it. No, I I could have sworn like originally when they said slot was on that book, it was just slot was on that book to to do something until fantastic four came out. Okay. Yeah. That's you see, I thought slot was uh, with it. I remember it being pitched as a superhero Marvel universe meets black mirror situation, which got me real excited for it. 
I was real excited for slot being on at the time. That's not at all what I feel we've gotten. I feel we've gotten this mishmash of other Iron Man stories that have been told in better ways. Yeah. However, the announcement came out this week that, yeah, they are ending Tony Stark. And in 2020, of course, Iron Man 2020, as heralded by the Marvel Comics teaser released via comic book. It was released with art by Inhyuk Lee and shows a version of Iron Man 2020 standing over Tony's grave. And there's a human hand coming out of the ground on Tony's grave. The end of Tony Stark will be solicited in December with issue number 19. And it's teasing Tony Stark's death. But we said this a few episodes back. This Tony Stark doesn't even know that he's the real, if he's the real Tony Stark, yeah. or just a carbon copy of Tony. And so this death has no meaning to us. The important thing here is to bring Tony, period, you know, the definitive Tony Stark back that has no doubts about who in the hell he is or anything and, and give us a character that we know, associate and believe in rather than a Tony Stark questioning, is he just a copy of a copy of a copy? Because that takes all the bite out of it for me. If you're a Xerox copy, I don't care because you're not adding anything new to it or giving me anything to care about with you. Yeah. So we got that going for us, or Marvel's got that going for them coming up in 2020. I don't know that there's been a creative team announced on it yet, but the the advertisement art looked pretty awesome, except those cogs that Iron Man 2020 wears on his shoulders. Those look more problematic than anything else. I'm wondering what purpose they actually serve. I was about to say, surely they're going to keep those. That's the only thing that makes... Well, people didn't re remember from him was the shoulder cog. In the previous incarnations, and David McLaney, when David McLaney was writing it with, oh, I can't recall his name, doing the art. Everybody knows this guy. He's great. He's reliable. He's on time. He's still active. But the cogs were low enough to the shoulders that they didn't make a difference. Now, this new looking design that they're using in the advertisement, those cogs are, he, if he turns his head to the right or left, he can't see out of his eye holes. Yeah. Not that he necessarily has to, but it just looks a little more problematic. Cool design, just problematic design. Nobody knows if it's Arno Stark, who Iron Man 2020 originally was. I think he first appeared in Machine Man. And the most notable story I recall him being in was in a Spider-Man annual, which was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy situation for Arno Stark which David McLaney wrote. It was really, really quite good, too. You excited about Iron Man 2020? Not really. What would it take to get you excited about Iron Man 2020, Albert? <laughs> what Pro do we have probably to, nothing. What do we have to do to sell Iron Man 2020 to you? <laughs> Let it be, I don't know, Iron Man 1987 or something? I don't know. <laughs> Iron Man 1987. Well, that was when Iron Man 2020 showed up. All right. If I asked you what are the most popular Halloween costumes to date for this year in the adult category, what would you say? In the adult category? Yeah, we'll start with adult. Let me think here. I don't know an adult. Is Batman one of them? Batman is on the list. Is Donald Trump one of them? No, no, nowhere no, on, no, 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 nowhere no on the list. Okay, in the adult category, witch, vampire, zombie. Oh, I didn't. I thought it was like specific characters, not not just generic things. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I ruined that for you. And then we go from... <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was what we was going for. 
Then we go to, uh, then we go, okay, you got witch, vampire, zombie, then pirate, and then random Avengers character, excluding Spider-Man. Now, this is an adult, right? Yeah. Then, underneath random Avenger character, excluding Spider-Man, you have Batman. Not the Tom King version, any other version. But then Batman, then any Star Wars character, and then ghost, random superhero, clown and wonder woman what does that tell you about where society's going <laughs> nowhere because it's probably the same list every year it's very similar i imagine it tops i know one year batman uh, i i know several years that batman topped the adult list yeah uh wonder woman seems to always have a place somewhere in their child the top selling costumes are random princess yeah random as in anything from disney Random superhero, then Batman, then any Star Wars character, then witch, Spider-Man, random Avengers character, then ghost, pirate, aside from princess, Frozen, Elsa, or Anna. That's weird that Star Wars is on there. Why is it weird that Star Wars is on there? Kids don't like Star Wars anymore. Kids love Star Wars. No, not in the last 15 years. Man, children are all about Star Wars. <laughs> Don't start this crap. Is it like Lego Star Wars characters or, or Star no. Wars Star Wars characters? It's Star Wars Star Wars characters. You think it's parents making their daughters dress up as Ray? You think that's what it, it is? It most certainly is not. Look, you go on YouTube right now. Is, and... is it, I want to sound insensitive, or is it uh, little people buying Ewok costumes? <laughs> Like, those are technically would be kid sizes. No, no. Look, you go on YouTube and you type in Black Spire Outpost and... Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not messing up my recommendations on YouTube. <laughs> Log out of YouTube, go back, type in Black Spire Outpost and child or children or son or daughter, and you watch all the interactions these kids are having, these little bitty kids dressed as their favorite Star Wars characters, BB-8, Ray. It'll, it'll make you tear up, man. I doubt it. <laughs> What's some kid doing walk around in a BB-8 costume? Having the time of her life. There's one in particular with this kid walking around in a BB-8 costume and people just have a fit over her. Them kids need to get better heroes. Those kids, you cannot ask for a better pantheon of heroes than Star Wars. Look, I, I will, I'm going to, I can't wait to hear you backtrack all of this in December. I can't wait to see you show up in your I Love Ray t-shirt. You know what? If, if, I like, <laughs> if I like episode nine, I will admit I liked it as long as you admit that episode eight was a bad movie. I can't admit that episode oh, eight was a bad that? movie. No, it's a I'm great gonna... piece of movie piece, uh, new episode, movie making. Episode nine is a bad movie. Episode nine is not a bad movie. I I don't know what you. First off, I forbid you from hanging out with Boba Rett anymore. <laughs> I don't hang out with him. <laughs> I had a job interview that I was horribly unqualified for, and that was the <laughs> that was the extent of that. You are. Probably unqualified. And I don't want you talking to Jason about things either because Jason's just got a negative outlook on life. So, <laughs> all right. You ready for some questions from listeners? I guess. Let me look up the one. I'm going out of order now since we're already on the Star Wars topic. Michelle emailed us and asked on Twitter this past week. Now, I don't know if this was 
the week of October 2nd or last week. On Twitter this week, Mark Hamill called Ivanka Trump a fraud when she tweeted a pic of her family with the caption, the force is strong in her family. I know Stan is very big into Star Wars. Where do you both stand on this? I, I did go back and I looked this up and basically it's uh, Ivanka. Stan would. Well, I don't know. I, I think some of this, I think people are sometimes maybe not intentional, but want to see where we lean politically. And when you just don't care, there's no political leaning whatsoever. <laughs> I did go back and I looked at this. Basically, Ivanka Trump, rich woman, and I think her husband, I assume her husband, and they have a little kid there in a stormtrooper costume. And she says, the force is strong with her family. And then Mark Hamill clapped back saying fraud. Okay. Michelle, I don't care who the kid is, who the child is. If the child is participating in a fandom, the child should be allowed to participate in the fandom without an adult taking a pot shot at the child's. I, I know Mark was taking a shot at the kid's grandfather or the Trump family, but he could have let this one pass by because it's a kid. And I don't care if the kid's rich. I don't care if the kid's poor. If the kid shows a love of something and it's something that's not harming the child, then no adult should come back at this. On the other end of that, like I just said, I don't care about the politics involved in this. This is why I'm not as good on Twitter as I am on Facebook, because Twitter just looks like people sitting around waiting for somebody to say something that sets them off so they can respond to it. It is. That's all it is. There doesn't seem, for every congratulations somebody gets, there's another one saying, but you could have done this better or you didn't do this well enough. Mark Hamill was not always gracious about being Luke Skywalker at the conventions and such after Return of the Jedi forward. He seems to have come around recently. There's no saying, don't meet your heroes. I've seen enough random Mark Hamill tweets and random William Shatner tweets, and not about politics, about anything, and about especially Shatner getting involved in little minor things and all that. This is beneath them. There's a reason that you don't ever see George Lucas or Kathleen Kennedy tweet or respond to somebody's random picture of their family. Or, or something like that. They're, they're above it. And I feel that there's some things that all of us could just stand back and let slide on by. Politics is not everything in life. In fact, it, it's a great deal less important than people believe it is. This is a kid, and this kid's going to grow up if he continues to have a fandom or a fan interest in Star Wars when he gets to be 12, 13, 14 years old, somebody can go back to the Twitter archives and says, Luke Skywalker hates you. And that's just nasty. Yeah, when he's that old, he'd be like, screw this, I'm going to Star Trek. But then he looks around and all the Star Trek fans are dead. <laughs> They've all just grown old and died. <laughs> Mark Adam, don't write an email. Just call me. <laughs> He goes to Star Trek convention. It's just him in an empty room and some Spock ears. God. So that's your overall take on the Mark Hamill situation is that all the Star Trek fans are going to die of old age. They're getting there. They've already have, Stan. 
that's very poignant. That's that's. Okay, moving right along. Joseph. I did, I did. Going back, see, I get to say this about Star Trek. Go ahead, because uh, there's a Star Trek group that meets at the Pelham Library, and I went through their last meeting. Yeah, talking I, about Star I, Trek. They told me you did, so I get to talk about that Star Trek now. So you're just going to the meetings so you can talk smack about Star Trek. You gotta gotta be fair with it. <laughs> All right, Joseph K has sent in an email. And he says that Tom Brevroot says on Twitter, Tom Brevroot is uh, Marvel, right? I'm one of the Marvel execs. Yeah, he's one of them dudes. Yeah, said on Twitter that he liked Heroes in Crisis better as a trade because it felt like the story read better in a single sitting. I went back and read it in a single sitting and still have the ambivalent feelings about it that I shared before. And then Joseph K asks, are there any books y'all feel that way about you didn't like them as single issues, but as a whole, you enjoyed it more. Probably Final Crisis reads better as one big coherent thing rather than chopped up in issues. I'm trying to think of anything else. I thought Dark Knight, I thought the original Dark Knight does better as a trade paperback or in one single sitting than does the individual issues. I was buying the Dark Knight, the original Dark Knight, as it was coming out, and there was a big delay between the last couple of issues there. It felt better rather than reading them alone, reading them all together. It seemed to flow better. A lot of Hickman stuff, I think, reads better in trade. Like, I still think Hickman stuff is utterly fantastic in single issues. It reads slightly better in trade because he's such a slow burn writer. Yeah. But sometimes the the weight from the, the issue to issue thing sometimes doesn't work as well as just saying, like, hey, here's six issues, sit down and read them. The payoff is more immediate and more obvious that way yeah. with him. Yeah. And and the same can be said for Grant Morrison. I was reading Animal Man issue by issue, but I really appreciated it when I sat down and read the entire thing in trade. I really, as much as I loved it issue by issue, the trade really did something a bit more for me. So I guess what we're saying is the more complicated pieces or the more pieces that seem spread out or possibly even delayed seem to read better like that. Yeah. Yeah, those were just a few of the names. Okay, then we got somebody with the initials AA that sent us an email asking, where is Jason? Why isn't he on the podcast? Also, you are pronouncing Henry Cavell's name wrong. I think I've been saying Cavill instead of Cavell. And as to that last part about Henry Cavell's name, I will give a crap about Henry, how to pronounce Henry Cavell's name when Henry Cavell gives a crap about playing the character Superman. As for where is Jason, Jason is doing fine. He's going to be at the Iron City Con with a setup this coming Saturday. That would be Saturday, October what, 4th? The 4th is Friday, 5th Saturday. Oh, I'm sorry, the 5th. Uh, October 5th, Saturday, October 5th at the Gardendale City Center or what have you. Just go to ironcitycon.com and he'll be on the dealer's floor there. He isn't on the podcast because Jason doesn't believe in the internet. No, he doesn't. He acknowledges it exists, but, and this is just in passing understanding of his philosophy concerning computers and the internet, they're somehow connected to Satan. (laughs) And he may be right, but as a result, Jason also cannot drive at night, so he's not going to, Albert and I typically do this podcast at 10 p.m., starting at 10 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Jason is not going to drive over to my house at night, sit across 
table from me and then tried to drive back home at midnight or one in the morning. And he has not gotten internet. We're coming closer to talking him into it. We're getting very close to convincing him that he needs the internet, if for nothing else than just to talk to Albert and me on Wednesday nights over the podcast. So, but thank you for asking, AA. And I, I didn't mean to get too terribly snarky about Cavill, but I, the more I hear about Henry, the less I care about him. And the more I believe Superman deserves somebody better to play or to represent him in this reality. He's handsome. <laughs> A lot of handsome people out there. <laughs> okay. I wish right. I looked like him. <laughs> Andrew sent an email that asks, and Albert, you're going to get to explain this first, and then I'll chime in. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. What exactly is Diamond? Do we have to worry about our LCS, local comic shop, with all of these changes you were talking about at Diamond? Should we panic? Diamond is the sole distributor of comic books in uh, the United States of America. Well, I guess about anywhere that wants comic books through it. It's the world, yeah. If you want to set up a shop and want to sell comics, you have to go through them to get your comics. And as we talked last week, Diamond is not a monopoly by design. Diamond is not even technically a monopoly because there are plenty of periodical publication distributors out there. However, Diamond is the only periodical publication distributor that distributes comic books from Marvel, DC, IDW, Boom, Dark Horse, and all these other. So that's what Diamond is. If you're going to have a direct sales comic book shop, Albert's right, you have to go through Diamond. Now, do you have to worry about your local comic shop with all the changes at Diamond? Probably not with all the changes at Diamond, but yes, you do have to worry about your local comic book shop. Go down and support them. If they're kind to you, if they meet your needs, if they're happy to see you and happy to have your business and not gouging you on prices, then get out there and give your local comic book shop as much money as you can afford to do, as much business as you can afford to do with them. Because Books A Million and to a lesser extent Barnes & Noble are on the horizon and those are sharks that don't give a damn about your personal collection, nor you, nor care about your name or anything else. All they want to do is sell you their little discount cards that discount books that are inflated beyond belief at what seems to you a reasonable level. They just want your money, man. Your local comic book shop, if you've got a good one, they care about you. They know who you are. They know what your interests are. And they take your pull list as a priority and try to help you out. So, yeah. Worry about your local comic book shop, but not necessarily from all the changes at Diamond. Should we panic? In the words of Douglas Adams, don't panic. All right, that was Andrews. Okay, Jeremy sent in one. Jeremy asks, why don't they show Saturday morning cartoons like they used to? Because they show them like 24-7. They're everywhere. Which was y'all's favorites? <laughs> Jeremy. Well, that's basically the answer. They're everywhere, but... I think he means when you could sit down in front of the TV on Saturday morning and there was a lineup. Some of the stations, I think, still have some sort of lineup, but not the not ABC, NBC, or CBS. It's not economically feasible for them to show Scooby-Doo and the Super Friends back-to-back, -back, whereas Cartoon Network is a channel that runs 20, well, I started to say 24-7 with cartoons. 
whereas Cartoon Network shows at least four hours of cartoons a day. In addition to that, you've got Nickelodeon.com, and I understand that Nickelodeon.com streams 90s cartoons for free. Albert, oh, they do? That's cool. I didn't know yeah. that. Albert, you got anything to add aside from what you just said there to us? Well, what's your favorite Saturday morning cartoon? Oh, he asked us our favorites, too. Yeah. Uh, Scooby-Doo. It would have been Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And the Scooby-Doo, I forget what it was, Scooby-Doo team-ups, Scooby-Doo movies, where he'd cross over with celebrities. I did not like it when Scrappy came into it. Next to that, I always used to look forward to the Super Friends, even though the Super Friends caused my first migraine. How about you? Well, I was around in the 80s, so it was like Transformers, G.I. Joe, He-Man. I remember like my favorite cartoon when it came out, and it was also the first comic book I bought with my with my own money, was Cops, the Future of Law Enforcement. I, was, I really, really loved that cartoon as a kid. Oh my God, I forgot they existed. But the moment you said that, I saw that badge and heard that boom, boom, boom when the letters uh, come down. And Brave Star. I really love Brave Star too. I knew Brave Star existed. The animation looked a lot like Thundercats to me. There's a lot of cartoons that we could think on. Again, like Albert said, he grew up in the 80s. I grew up in the 70s. But the ones that I absolutely had to see were Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? And The Super Friends as I was growing up. I like several of the cartoons that came on Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I very much like that. That was later. That was as I was getting out of cartoons and such. I, I realized how bad and cheesy and corny Spider-Man and his amazing friends were, but dear God, they were the first to animate the X-Men. And Wolverine had an Australian accent for some reason. Well, they probably never made a Canadian before. I didn't know what they sounded like. <laughs> well, they sound like Terrence and Philip on South Park. Someone saw Mad Max and probably thought it took place in Gaelic Canada. <laughs> That's Canadian. They had the X-Men on two episodes of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. One episode did not have Wolverine in it, and they kind of rewrote the script where Firestar was Jean Grey. She was one of the original members of the X-Men. And then, the, yeah, and then next season they had an X-Men episode that did have Wolverine in it. That in and of itself, should justify the $70 a year for D23, as they will have all of the Spider-Man animated series on it, including Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Did you know that? No, I didn't know they going to have that. They've got Spider-Man animated, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and on down the list. They, that, old, that old 19th Spider-Man animated is wild. The one, from oh, the, wait, the one from the 60s? Yeah, with uh, was it Bashki? It's Bashki, isn't it? I yeah. think he worked on some of it. Where he was doing acid and the backgrounds for Spider-Man, and he decided, screw New York, we need to get Spider-Man as far away from New York as possible. And he was always battling underground cults and underground yeah. demons. His uh, webbing was like a Green Lantern ring. It just made whatever. Oh, yeah, the webbing. He made, the webbing. He made, he made working small engines with webbing. That's it. You remember that episode? He made a boat and then he made a damn motor for the boat and the yeah. motor worked with the webbing. Uh, apparently this was the point where people just, there was no oversight on these cartoons whatsoever. And Bashki has said as much. He said that he was tripping for a lot of that. For those of you who don't know who Bashki is, B-A-S-H-K-I, look him up. There's several things he's done where you think, my God, he's, he's brilliant, but he can't quite carry an idea all the way through it seems like his animation his art style is interesting so there's that go out there look up bashki all righty new comic books this week you ready yeah 
Let's start off with some independence. This was a good week for non-Marvel, non-DC books. There was a whole lot of stuff out there. Yeah, there's a good bit of stuff out there. Uh, some good stuff, too. Well, the first one I picked up was a number one issue. Like I said, we tried to get as many of the number ones that come out each week into the podcast. It's from Image Comics. Mickle Fife did all of it. Every last bit of this comic book is attributed to Mickle Fife. And it's called Copra, number one. That's C-O-P-R-A, number one. I actually read the whole thing. Well, <laughs> and remember, we're doing the rating system. Writing, art, overall dynamic. Each gets a rating one to five. One yeah, I'll get the rating of one, one, and one. Okay. I didn't even write Copra. I just put no, just no. And I hated doing that because clearly this person, Mickle, put a lot of effort into it and it just doesn't pay off. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I can't fault the guy for doing that. I mean, no. he, clearly, he clearly worked hard on it. And I thought there was, there was times where he did just enough unique stuff with a panel or an angle. Where it almost became a good thing, and it, but it, no, it just it just wasn't good. Hopefully, Mickle will keep at this and practice more and come back. I mean, clearly he has a love because it's a hell of a thing to turn out an entire comic book by yourself. I don't really think it was worth the money. And so we're going to move right on. Apparently, neither did you, right? Correct. I didn't care for it. Going right from that, we've got Strange Skies over East Berlin, which you touted this this week on the Facebook, on Kingdom's Facebook page, didn't you? Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was a very well done book. Uh, I'd give the writing like a four. I'd give the, the art like a three. And I guess the overall package like a, like a four. I thought it was a very well done book. Very well put together. I like a lot of spy books and comics, things like that. And this was sort of right up that alley. And they don't, they don't lean too hard on the alien stuff yet in it. So overall, you thought this was a 3.5. It starts off as a typical Cold War thriller, if you can call Cold War thrillers typical in this day and age. I really liked it. Uh, Jeff mm -hmm. Loveness is the writer. Lisandro Estherin is the artist. I thought it was an excellent Cold War thriller. I thought it was an excellent Cold War thriller with a twist and a fizz to it. It was a great start. Definitely worth the money. I gave the writing on it a five. I thought it was very yeah. good dialogue. He made everything very clear. The art on it, I gave a four and I gave the art. I started to give the art a three, but the art matched the writing so well on it that I upped it to four. And I gave the dynamic a five because while we do get situations where unidentified things or bright lights happen in the skies, followed up by some sort of an alien story, we haven't necessarily gotten one that's set right smack dab at uh, the epicenter for the Cold War in Germany. This has enough twists and turns that I think it's going to be a good story. So my overall score was 4.5. So we both, yeah, we both agree that this, this is something to look at. If anything we've said about it sounds appealing to you, definitely worth your money. Jumping back to image dead eyes. Number one, this was the book they got sued over. Did they? I had no idea. What they Remember get they had that book. It was going to, this was going to be called like dead eyes dead rabbit, rabbit or something. Dead Rabbit. And, and it was like a bar or band or something. I think it was a bar had the name, so they were going to sue them. So they had to like take it off and redo everything. And, and like, this is the return of it from a year ago. Yeah. All right. Now I remember it was called Dead Rabbit originally. I think it's still called Dead Eyes. It may have been called like Dead Eyes Rabbit or something like that. Okay. Well, it's Dead Eyes now. I think. I don't, I don't remember. I remember, but this, this was the book they got sued over. 
I don't know the details about the lawsuit. I do remember them getting sued over it. it, it I, went, I you're, you're right. You're, I was looking it up. It was, it was just called Dead Rabbit. You're right. Now that you've pointed this out, thinking back on it, I can see where they would have made some changes. Overall, I thought this was a good book. I almost dropped it after the first couple of pages. I'm glad I hung in there with it. It was a nice street vigilante story with a completely different take on the vigilante. I thought it was well worth the money. Yeah, it was a real good read. Yeah, it starts off fairly basic. Mm-hmm. But then once you get into it, it's got some very good writing and very good character work in it. It really does. And it's got a lot of promise to it. If you have something overly crude in the first few pages, that's typically automatically a turnoff to me. And what this was, was literal toilet humor Yeah, that I saw in the first couple of pages. And I thought, all right, you got two more pages, but they hooked me in. I gave the writing a four. The art was a three. The overall dynamic was a five because I like this twist on the vigilante. He's not a good guy. He's not a punisher. He's not, he's a little bit of a different vigilante than we've ever seen before. I, I gave it like straight fours. Oh, my score evens out to four too. So we both gave Dead Eyes a four. It's well worth the read. Jerry yep. Duggan is the writer. John McRae is the artist on it. So yeah, pick up Dead Eyes. Now, while we're still hanging out at Image, Nomen Omen, number one. Did you get a chance to review that one? I read it and I can't, I can't remember what it was. Okay. That's a very good point. This is from Image Comics. The writer is Marco Bucci, and Jacopo Kamani is the artist on it. It's very disjointed. The art is good, but it's a very disjointed book. I think it's odd and weird for the sake of weird. It starts off with two women leaving a camp, and it's maybe it implies that the two women are lesbians. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they find that woman in the woods. And then there's yeah. that whole, like, a time skip or something or something going on at the end of it with a colorblind character. Yeah, it does not have enough of a narrative to make it perfectly clear what was happening. I took my time with it and went back over a couple of pages. I could, I could figure it out for story's sake. But this is going to be a turnoff for anybody just picking up this book that's looking for something new to read. If, if anybody comes back to issue number two, it's going to be because of the art. Yeah. The art was, yeah, the art was good. I remember the art. It involves magic. And so a lot of people think that when you're involving magic in a story, that's carte blanche to get away with anything. You have to set up and define your rules to magic as you do with any story, any, any MacGuffin in any story, you have to have rules for this to work and reasons why it wouldn't work. It just seemed weird for the sake of being weird. The story needs to be much clearer on it. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm coming back to number two, but again, I can't say enough good things about the art in it. I yeah, thought the art the was good. Like, nice. I'll give the the writing a one. Art, I will give a four. Yeah. Okay. But I do remember I really liked the art and everything, and then I guess the overall package, I'll give a one, two. The writing on it, Marco Bucci had good dialogue in places. It was just that the dialogue was, again, disjointed and out of context. So I gave the writing a two. The art, I gave a four on. The overall dynamic, there's potential there because I I got an idea of what they're doing with the story, but I don't think it's going to follow through. So I gave that a two. So basically a 2.5 for this book from me. Nomen Omen number one. And your overall was what? Two? Yeah, it'd be two rather than two. Well, my favorite non-Marvel, non-DC book is back, Albert. <laughs> Star Pig. Star Pig number three. How did you know? <laughs> I don't think that Hollywood can snatch this up and make it a movie fast enough. 
Delilah Dawson, outstanding writer on it, and Francesco Gaston. I love the art. That's a good book. I really liked it. Okay, so that's not just me. No, I, no, I, it's, it's a good, solid book. I do have one problem, because I remember I was bit, real big on Laika, the dog that the Soviets shot into space, and I kept thinking to myself, something doesn't look right. And yeah, the markings are wrong, but they do state that they've altered the clones of the original Laika, the original dog that the Soviets shot into space and lost. Yeah. Issue number three was not as high octane as the previous two issues, not as many laughs, but it does a good job giving a foundation to the story going forward. And it's a very entertaining book. I gave the writing a four, the artist a four, and the overall dynamic a five. I gave the writing a three, the art a four, and the dynamic a four. The writing I really like, and this is a personal thing of mine, and yeah. that Legion book that Dim Bendis did is horrible, horrible about this. When books take place in the far future, deep space or whatever, like we don't need references to pop culture from the late 20th to early 21st century. Well, they're writing it in as a story plot point. It seems really unnecessary. Uh, they, well, I don't thought, even like it as a plot point. I just get tired of it. Yeah, I mean, if she, you're going to bring anything up from the 20th century, people be like, oh, crap, that's where Hitler came from. And that, that's, that's what. <laughs> so far, I think you're right. It does seem like Hitler is going to be the one meme that survives the 20th century. <laughs> she at least ex tries to explain the interest in the 20th century, that all of the galaxy is interested in Earth pop culture via the 20th century. Overall, I still think it's an entertaining book. You give it a 3.5 overall, I give it a 4.5 overall. Space Pig, pick it up. <laughs> and then we've got another book that came out from IDW this week that we were both just in love with issue number one over and number two came out, Mountainhead. How do you feel about it now, Albert? I don't. I didn't read Mountainhead. It's the uh, little boy that was raised by a thief. And... Oh, that came out. Nah, nah, yeah. See, I had to read that copper crap. You messed me up. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just to give a brief reminder here to Albert and the audience, it looks like a little boy and his dad are cat burglars breaking into people's homes while they're gone. The dad is very off the grid, massively paranoid to the point of sickness it becomes a little more clear in this issue that he may very well be sick. When they arrest the dad and they find the boy, they find that this little boy was one that was kidnapped from a family. So they return him to his family. The boy lives in a mountain town underneath a large mountain and something strange is going on. And in all honesty, you can't tell if it's the child's paranoia or really something weird happening as of issue number two the more you get into it the more likely is that it may be a little bit of both it may be split right down the middle there's definitely something weird going on but the kid's paranoia may also be playing into the situation yeah it basically deeper into the mountain we go with issue number two art and story still go hand in hand the art is awkward but it's meant to be awkward and it fits the story fine it's a great mystery outstanding characterization and the book kicks surreal ass you want horror this is the best book being offered in the horror genre right now i gave the writing a five the art of four the overall dynamic of five that comes out to a 4.5 if you're just going to pick up one independent book or one new book to read go back and find issue number one of mountainhead and get issue number one and two number two hit the stands this week albert loved number one too i've just messed him up a little bit on the reading order <laughs> Well, another week, another Batman book. <laughs> Batman number 80, Albert. Well, I mean, Romita's art was pretty good in it. I always love John, John 
Jansen. Claus Jansen. Claus Jansen. Yeah, Claus Jansen. Yeah, Claus, uh, he inked it up for him really good, but it's just sort of stupid. What are you finding stupid about it? Stupid did not pop into my mind with this issue. What popped into my mind was it, it's amazing how many ways to stall and draw crap out. Yeah, that, it's and there's no urgency in anything that goes on in this comic. I have no real sense that anybody's in danger. Yeah, I mean, Alfred's dead or presumed dead. Damien's got a gun to his head at the end of it. But and yet, I'm not worried at all. <laughs> Batman is... He's not overly concerned about anything, and because he's not, then I'm not as a reader. So it's just sort of, things are happening, and I don't care because Batman doesn't seem to care. It seemed like Mr. King was going for a lot of stand-up-and-cheer Batman moments when he shows up in disguise in the alleyway and takes down Pig Dude and Two-Face. That was not a stand-up-and-cheer moment. It was more like me looking at my watch going, you're a little late. (laughs) And I can understand Professor pig doing the weird dress up as cop thing but two-faced surely surely hard like that seems so out of character for harvey completely not just out of character for harvey but out of character in the way batman encounters and deals with harvey there's no history between anybody between batman and anybody else in this book except catwoman yeah carvey like two-faced could have been anybody it wouldn't have mattered who it was the history and the relationship between batman and catwoman to me, and I went back and read a few of the recent issues. I also said last week, I did go back and read 1 through 50. 1 through 50 had some outstanding moments. I don't know what happened after that. But the Batman-Catwoman relationship now is reading to me like something Cinemax would play, except they're having to make people wear bathing suits. Yeah. I, there were no, I know what he was going for with these moments in the alleyway and the reveal that, you know, is Batman in disguise, like we didn't know with that fake mustache. It's just not there. There's no heart to it. I'm I'm not the least little bit. I don't remotely think Damien is in trouble. And as of right now, I still don't think Alfred is dead. Yeah. Largely because of Doomsday Clock. But John Romita Jr., like I said, I always love his stuff. But I think he works better on Superman than Batman. I think he works best on Spidey. But I, I prefer his Superman stuff to his Batman stuff. Overall, I gave the writing a two. The art in it was a three. The overall dynamic is a two. Yeah, I'll give it a two. I, I give the writing a four. Okay. And I give the, the overall like a two. Like, yeah, you, I just... Wait, you gave the writing a four? No, I gave the writing a two. I gave the art writing a four. Two. Oh, okay. Good. I may All have right. misspoke. Well, no, that's okay. I was just getting... So you gave the writing a two. I gave the writing a two. You gave the art a four. I gave the art a three. Uh, I gave the dynamic a two. What did you give the dynamic? Two. Okay. I gave it a 2.5 and you gave it a two. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on from Batman, which will eventually get a new writer on it. Legion of Superheroes, Millennium Number 2. Bendis with various artists. The art's very good, but that's the only thing I liked about it. Well, you didn't care for it. You were mad because you were saying, yeah, it's advertised as a Legion book, but... It's the same thing. Yeah, it's Rose and Thorn, but it's making me enjoy... It's making me like the Legion much more than I ever have before. I don't know. I don't want no Legion book where they're not in it. Well, they were in it at the end. And what is that, Booster Gold talking about friends? Was that Booster Gold? That was Booster Gold, man, and I love that. Was it? Yes, that was Booster Gold talking to her about, you know, we could grab a few things, go back in time and make a fortune and live the high life. That was Booster Gold. He's a janitor at the museum, remember? Mm -hmm. Or a caretaker, I think. 
He's a caretaker at the superhero museum and he steals the Rip Hunter time machine that they have on display and goes back in time. This happened way back in the 80s when uh, Booster Gold was first introduced. But with Bendis, there's no rewriting or tweaking Booster Gold's history of this. It just so happens that he runs into Rose slash Thorn walking around the museum, hitting on her, and keeps making jokes about Chandler Bing and friends, who he can't even remember the names for. See, I enjoyed that. I I thought that was cute. Yeah, but you like the Friends TV show. I don't. (laughs) What don't you like about the Friends TV show? I don't know. I'm not a woman. I don't like it. Everybody, the hell? <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to sit quietly over here with my friend's Lego set. <laughs> All right, smartass. I gave the writing on Legion of Superheroes Millennium number two. I gave the writing a four, the art a four, the dynamic a four. I gave it an overall four. What'd you give it? I give it like two, a four, and... We'll say a three on the dynamic. I didn't care for the big splash pages with text. Okay, so you gave it a three as an overall. Yeah. You're not too far off here. Is your main problem with it that it's more Rose, it's Rose and Thorn and not really Legion of Superheroes? Yeah, that's exactly what my problem is. And you just didn't care at all about Booster Gold's interaction? Not when he started talking about friends. <laughs> Maybe if he was talking about Beavis and Butthead. Beavis and Butthead have already been forgotten. <laughs> I don't see people canceling their Netflix subscription over the threat that Netflix is going to lose Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) Whereas they do friends. How could you do that? Courtney Cox is from your state, man. A lot of people are from my state. Just, just tacky, Albert. (laughs) I'm from the state. It don't make me special. (laughs) Green Lantern came out this week. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. The dynamic was growing tired of me. I think I ended up with 3.5 overall. The writing is a four. Art was a three. And the overall dynamic, I gave a three on as well. I mean, it's still more Grant Morrison insaneness. It was the wrap up to his first first season. I gave it fives across the board. Well, naturally. (laughs) I gave it all fives. Well, this is the end to his first run, but he's coming yeah. back in 2020, right? He's kind of, yeah, he's got a little break mini series coming up next. And then in 2020, he'll start back season two or whatever of his run. Okay, good. Just Grant Morrison being Grant Morrison and using Hal Jordan as his springboard. It's a wild ride. Now, Deceased, the zombie horror, which is not a zombie horror, but rather the anti-life equation, as we've learned. Deceased number five came out this week. Yeah, this was a real good issue. I liked it a whole lot. I did too. This issue makes the previous issues even better. I like that they killed Batman right out of the gate, so he wasn't going to have any handy solutions. And now they do something similar in this issue. It's got one more issue left to it. And I've enjoyed the one-shots for the most part of Deceased that have been coming out in between issues. Taylor is the writer on it. Hersene is the artist. It's a car wreck. You can't not look at it. But what makes it easier to take in is the dialogue. The writing is real good. Yeah, they they do a very good job with it. I gave the writing a four, the art a four, the overall dynamic. I argued between a two and a three, but I ended up giving it a three on dynamic, which led to a score of 3.5. Yeah, that's pretty much my score. On to that quaint little upstart company that is trying to make a go of it, Marvel Comics. Fantastic Four number 15, Slot and Medina. Slot on the writing duties, Medina on art. 
Yeah, I liked it. Uh, tell you the from the perspective of the Justice League team on the other planet, and then the Fantastic Four land, land on them. Thought they did a good job with it. Well, I'm I'm loving Slot on Fantastic Four. Much better job than Iron Man. Not as good as Spidey yet, but he was on Spidey for a number of years. I was about to cut out of this issue of Fantastic Four because I am so sick of alternate versions of the Avengers and JLA. Mm-hmm. And the majority of this book is about yet another alternate reality version of the Avengers slash JLA. I'm just so sick of that concept. It's not funny with me anymore. There's nobody's bringing anything new to the table with any of this. Having said that, once the Fantastic Four arrive, things do pick up. He's got a couple of good plot twists in this, a good plot device. It's still a good read. It's more of an adventure into the unknown, which suits the FF better than the standard hero villain stories that you have to come up with for Avengers and X-Men. I think this is going to be more about the culture in this society than it is the fact that this is an amalgam Avengers JLA group that they're having to interact with. Don't you? Yeah. So I give it more than benefit of doubt. The writing was a three on my score art four. the overall dynamic was a three. I gave it a 3.5. That's pretty much my score. I thought the art was the best thing about it. The art was the best thing about it. But again, the book really does pick up when the fantastic four show up. I felt they spent a little too much time showing us who the super team was, and that's not necessary. We know they're another knockoff and crossover between the Avengers and the Justice League. Okay, did you find Absolute Carnage Immortal Hulk one-shot? Yeah, it was the last thing I read tonight. Okay, would you agree with me that they should read, if they're picking up both Immortal Hulk and the Absolute Carnage Immortal Hulk one-shot, they should read Absolute Carnage Immortal Hulk first before reading Immortal Hulk number 24? Yeah, I mean, it does take place before this week's Immortal Hulk. So, yeah, if you're reading them in order, and look, if you're reading Immortal Hulk number 24, there's no reason you should not get Absolute Carnage Immortal Hulk because it's written by Ewing. It's it's just another chapter in the storyline of Immortal Hulk. It's more of an Immortal Hulk one-shot than it is an Absolute Carnage one-shot. Yeah, this is mostly just there to bridge it, because at the end of the last Absolute Carnage, Venom, Venom Hulk or Carnage Hulk or whoever show up, and this just bridges the two books. This was very nicely done. Ewing took an opportunity here in what could have been just another throwaway one-shot with the event title across the page, and he took it. And he actually played the dynamic into the main storyline in Immortal Hulk. Much more of an Immortal Hulk one-shot than it is Absolute Carnage. Writing, five. Art was a three. The dynamic was a four. So overall, my score was four. What about yours? I give like the writing a three, art a three, and the dynamic like a, I, a straight three pretty much. Straight okay. Like it's nothing special or anything. It was just, it's okay. Well, it's, it's not a must have. You don't absolutely have to have it if you're reading Immortal Hulk, but it doesn't hurt it because Ewing's in charge of it. You want to talk about Immortal Hulk now? Yeah. Talk about Immortal Hulk number 24, Albert. Ewing is the writer. Bennett's the artist. It's a pretty nasty book. Well, why are you saying nasty? Well, I mean, they try to up the monster stuff with it some. They got the thing where Hulk rips off his, his skin flap that was his face and throws it at a guy and hits him in the eyes and blinds him. Abomination, which was Fordian? Yeah. Yeah. Pukes and misses Hulk and kill and like melts these other guys with it. Yeah, it was gross. And that's something that because the story is so good to me and what the characters are saying, I'm so involved in that. I, I completely give it a pass on the well it, well it fits with the with the story well. Like it's there to be gross, but it but it works fits in the story the actual story and plot of it 
perfectly. So, In other words, is there a shock value to doing this to a limited degree, but it fits so well that you don't get the impression that they're doing it for shock value at all? Yeah. And they're not. This book does not disappoint. This was pretty much bringing it all to a conclusion, the current story arc. Yeah, yeah, the current story arc sort of wraps up. And you got all that end of the universe stuff at the end of it. Yeah, that was, not only does the book not disappoint, it lives up to its name, outstandingly horrific on heretofore unimaginable scales for something that's considered a standard superhero book. It doesn't send ripples, but it sends waves through the entire Marvel Universe. Those last couple of pages there that play in and the beginning page that plays into the end page, the overall dynamic is something it just, just, I, I really like that. They let Ewing do this. There's no yeah. way they can walk away from this. I gave it a five out of five across the board. Me too. We both highly recommend immortal Hulk, but of course you listen to previous episodes. This really should not come as a surprise to you, but it does to me because it's always all in the landing. And this one, this story arc, this landed well. Moving on to things that maybe don't land as well. Ghost Rider, number one, by Brisson, writer, and Cooter, as artist, came out. Albert? <laughs> well, I liked it. The best thing about it to me was the art. Cooter's a fantastic artist. There's only like one Ghost Rider story. Well, demons are on Earth, and here's Ghost Rider. So that's the same old Ghost Rider story. Or just saying, hey, Johnny Blaze is king of hell, and he's probably going crazy because of it. That's that's about it, really. I've got a Ghost Rider story in me. I think I could do better than this. I I, I think I could do better than the, and I don't often say that, and I don't like them. But there's there's angles on Ghost Rider that have never that have not been touched since the '70s, and I I'm not a big Ghost Rider guy. What was your before I give my opinion? Give us your writing, art, dynamic, and overall score. I give the writing like two, I give the art a five, and I give the dynamic a three. You're basically 3.5, right? Yeah. I'm in Ghostbuster, uh, Ghostbuster shit. <laughs> I am so tired of Ghost Rider that I want to be reading Ghostbuster. <laughs> He's showing up in Avengers. I'm at Ghost Rider Overload. There's too many Ghost Riders, not enough story. I, I just want Johnny Blaze if I even want Johnny Blaze. Why can't we just have one Ghostbuster? <laughs> Why can't we just have one Ghost Rider in this time period? Pick one. I don't care if it's the kid with the car. I don't care if it's Ghost Rider runner-up from the 90s. I don't care if it's the original Ghost Rider. Pick one of them and stick with him. I, I don't care if he's King of Hell. I, I've seen him in Avengers. I've seen him here. I've seen him there. And he's not doing anything for me. You need to get a better angle on him. How can Immortal Hulk be such a great horror monster superhero comic and we can't do it with Ghost Rider? Well, they don't know what to do with Ghost Rider. Well, that's exactly it. Talk to Ewing. I bet he has some ideas. I gave the writing a two. The art was good. The art I gave a four. The dynamic I gave a one. This is tired and played out. I loved Ennis's Civil War uh, Ghost Rider that was set in uh, Civil War era. I can't yeah. recall the name of that, but that was great. This is what you do with Ghost Rider. If you have to jump to time period to time period with different Ghost Riders, I'm good with that. But in the Marvel Universe, pick one of the three or one of the four or however many there is. Pick one, stick with him, give him a story arc. Overall, my score was a 2.5 on Ghost Rider number one. I don't see that changing anytime soon unless they get somebody on it that's got a particularly different take. 
and we're down to it. We've only got, this is the penultimate issue to the end of the X saga that we have been following low these many weeks. Albert, run with it. House of X number six. Well, I mean, it's all set up. It's not really a... Powers of X had sort of a standard plot to it, but House of X is mostly set up. We're not quite done with the setup because we still got one missing place on the council. I looked at this, and if you didn't know what was going on, if you didn't know you got another book following it out next week, you could read this as a happy ending. Yeah. It was touching. It was definitive in some ways. I think it's a shame that, you know, when next week's Powers of X comes out, it's going to deliver a death blow to this. The other boot is about to drop. Because where do we go from, where do you go from up? I think these are great character moments. I love the way they're drawing Nightcrawler in it. He looks and he sounds and he talks like Nightcrawler. And that hasn't happened for so very long. It's not just Nightcrawler. We talked last week about Emma. And what great dialogue, what great characterization he's got going across the board. What did you think about their mutant laws? Number one, number one was make more mutants. Make more mutants. Number number two was. Yeah. Make more mutants at Nightcrawler's behest. Number two is kill no humans. Mm -hmm. And number three is the land is sacred. Yep. I know this is not going to stand. But if we ended the X-Men forever right here, I would be happy with it. No, I got to keep going. I got to go sabotage themselves. I know they do, but I'm telling you, I am in comic books because of the Uncanny X-Men. I am very heavily emotionally invested in the Uncanny X-Men. If you hadn't already called me a woman and uh, (laughs) been hitting me on Star Wars, I might, I might have admitted to while I was reading this, slightly tearing up. Because this is an unbelievable, like I said, if this was the ending, I'd be happy with it. I gave it a five across the board, of course. As do I, but maybe that was Hickman's point, was that this would be sort of, this is a hard stop for the X-Men, and now he can do other stuff. You know he's about to tear it all up. Is is to do all this setup so he... uh, so him and the X-Men characters aren't in the shadow of Claremont. That's what it amounts to. Yeah, but he doesn't, he, he relies so heavily on what Claremont and Byrne and Cochran yeah, like set it's, up. It's, it's all that and everything, but I think he really, he's, he's trying to do it where himself as a writer can move beyond that too. Yeah, and now here, here we go into a new era. We're always going to have, I mean, Lord Sentinels were Jack Kirby for Christ's sake. But things like we're always going to have Sentinel and Magneto. At some point, Magneto is going to turn on them because it's Magneto. You see, but after that, Charles, you have my word. Whatever animosities, whatever hatred disparities we had on our competing ideologies, it all ends here. On this, you have my word. He meant that. Whatever happens in the future, and yes, you're right, eventually Magneto is going to be Magneto. But he meant that. Also, just the little touches, like everybody at the council is invested in their own way in the council, except for Mystique, who has her legs up and is looking around like, is there a clock somewhere? Do we have a time limit on this? And that that works perfectly. I think Mystique wants to be on the council anyway, due to to destiny. I agree. She's there, but she doesn't have to act like she wants to be there. I think it's more of a a promise to take care of it if, if it ever gets that way with Myra. Yep, 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 yep. Well, all right, Albert, how, what say we end it here? There's okay. still a couple of things out there, but I think we finished it up well, and we are a bit over time, and it, editing this is a process. Anything to add? I heard a rumor that you might try to stroll into the Iron City Con to see your little buddy, 
Jason, on Saturday? I might. It's a coin toss at this point. It's a coin toss as to whether or not Albert might be there. Iron City Con this Saturday at the Gardendale Civic Complex, Iron City con.com take a look at them they've got some guests there they've got one of the pirates from pirates of the caribbean they've got a, a voice artist that's done work on dragon ball z and several things and more importantly than anything else they've got jason bean setting up with some of his art pieces that he's collected and a lot of his comics jason has a hell of a comic book collection so make your way out there Anything else you got? You you said that you were going to work on a, in addition to Kingdom Comics Facebook page, you're going to put up a Kingdom Casts page. Is that correct? And a Kingdom Casts in Instagram? Yeah, Kingdom Casts should have its own social media stuff here in a few days once I get it all taken care of. Okay. All right. And And basically what we'll do is we'll announce on both pages what's going on. We'll just put Kingdom Cast's post first on Kingdom Cast page and then on Kingdom Comics. Yeah. Uh, you got any questions? Look, we love y'all and y'all have given us a really wonderful week last week. Last week was just phenomenal. We want to thank y'all for that. We love y'all. Thank you very much. Albert, anything else to say? No, I got nothing. I'm good. <laughs> All right, then. We'll be back next week with more comic book goodness and we'll be back a little sooner with that than with a Joker, the movie, Joaquin Phoenix review. Yep, thank yep. you all again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.